0: Welcome to the San Antonio Bar Association First Gen Attorney Podcast, where we share the inspiring stories of those who overcame the odds by becoming the first attorneys in their families. What inspired them to pursue a career in the law? Who helped them overcome obstacles? What advice would they give to youth who are interested in pursuing a similar path? Join us to hear from our city's finest first generation attorneys. This podcast is brought to you by the San Antonio Bar Association and the Hill Law Firm. I'm Lawrence Morales, president of the San Antonio Bar Association, and I'm joined by Justin Hill of the Hill Law Firm. We are so glad that you are joining us. Well, welcome to the second episode of the San Antonio Bar Association First Generation Attorney Podcast. We are thrilled today uh, to have uh, federal uh, United States District Judge Jason Pulliam um, and I'm also joined by my co-host, uh, Justin Hill. Judge Pulliam, good morning. Good morning, good morning. How are you all today? We are doing great. We are so excited to have you here. Um, you know, for some of the audience that may be younger, may not know your story, uh, we're looking at a former Marine. I guess you're never a, a former Marine, right? Well, that, you're that's
1: o- accurate to say. You <laughs> could say it
0: that way. But, uh, but uh, grew up in Brooklyn and was uh, somewhat recently uh, installed as the first African-American uh, judge in the Western district of Texas. Is that right? That's correct. Excellent. And uh, I think what's interesting about your story in particular is you're from New York. Isn't that right? From Flatbush section of Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> so tell us kind of, uh, what I, we are hoping that, uh, our listeners will understand is you're a kid growing up in New York. I understand with modest means, isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct too. And just recently installed as the first African-American Western district judge of Texas, uh, we want to hear that story and kind of how you made yeah. one happen from the other. So let's kind of uh, set the scene here. So born in, in what year approximately?
1: 1971, exactly. A long time ago. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was sitting at home with my fiance yesterday thinking, gosh, you know, when we look back at when I was born, it's 19, anything, kids today, it's just so foreign to them. And I thought about it to them. It's probably like we thought the 1920s or 1930s. It's so long ago.
0: Amazing, yeah. Uh,
1: 1971, Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was actually my first couple of years. We were in the Crown Heights section, and then we moved to Flatbush. My mom, dad, and my brother.
0: So I know that the New York of today is different from the New uh, New York of the early yes. 1970s. Kind of set the scene of what those who aren't familiar with you know Flatbush and kind of what mm-hmm. that looks like.
1: Yeah. So uh, we moved to Flatbush in around 1974. We had a very small house that we uh, my mom still lives in. My parents got divorced. 1979, 1980, Um, I was about eight or nine years old. Um, Brooklyn, the Flatbush section was uh, kind of diverse at that time. There were more Caucasian families when we moved into the neighborhood. Um, And then around the early 80s, there was the the sort of transition in the community. More African-American families moved in. When when we moved there, um, there were maybe two black families. Um, and there weren't bodegas yet. They were just convenience stores, um, and there was a gentleman named Bob. I never knew his last name, but the gentleman named Bob owned the, the convenience store and was there for many years until the, the makeup of the community changed in the early 1980s, but the Flatbush section was sort of a working-class, working-poor community. I think my parents would, would qualify as working-poor. Um, you know, my, my dad, to this day, still is a a building superintendent. And for folks who don't know what that is, um, we don't have central air in New York or central heating. Um, so for heat, you have to have someone operate a boiler. And so he has to make the boiler function for a very large uh, building, you know, six, 10 stories. Um, he fixes everything from refrigerators, stoves, um, you know, window air conditioning units, minor electrical issues plumbing issues so that was his job and my mom worked 33 years for the city daycare center okay um and so that's kind of the the backdrop there um in the 70s um I was so young then but I I remember my older brother and I my brother's two and a half years older than I am um you know we we were able to just go outside and play all day and, and that wasn't a very big issue um but by the time the early 80s rolled around um, crime had become more rampant, um, and the, the situation got definitely much much tougher.
0: Got it. And you're going to public schools at this time, or what going schools, to schools the did you
1: go to? Public school. Yeah, I went to all public schools, uh, actually from uh, first grade all the way through law school. I've never been to any sort of private institution. Um, so yeah, I'm going to the local public school. I, I, I walked three blocks to the, the elementary school, um, and I had to do that very early on by myself. Um, so I would walk with a huge backpack. My backpack was probably bigger than I was.
0: So my kids look like,
1: too. Right yeah, now. yeah, so it's, I'm sure looking back, it was hilarious. Um, and so right across the street from the elementary school was a very large public housing development. We call them projects. Um, it's called the Vanderveer Projects, and it was one of the toughest projects in, in New York, and so a lot of the kids from uh, the projects, the Vanderveer Projects, went to my elementary school, and they, they divided elementary school up just pro- probably because of the sheer size mm-hmm. of the, the area. We had first through third grade in an annex building and then fourth through six in what we call the main building. And they were about two blocks apart. Um, and so I went to those two schools, PS 269, public school 269 um, on Nostrand Avenue and Newkirk in, in Brooklyn, New York. If anybody from Brooklyn is listening, <laughs> that's where, that's where I was. Um, so I went there first grade through sixth grade Um, and my brother, like I said, is two years, two and a half years older. So he was always kind of moving on as I was getting, um, moving on in school. So if I'm in first grade, he's in third grade. So by the time I got to third grade, he was already in that main building. So we were always separated a little bit. Um, so, but he would kind of set the stage so that people, at least who knew knew who I was. Um, so I avoided a lot of meetings just because of that, (laughs) that, oh, you're Charlie's little brother. Yeah, but, but otherwise is it a rough neighborhood yeah, it's a very rough neighborhood um and so uh, you know you get into your fair share of fights just because um you can I, I have a vivid memory um and i was a little bit older i was in we called it junior high school we didn't have middle school we didn't go six seven eight we went seven eight nine got it
0: right.
1: um and then high school could be you could go at ninth grade but i went 10 11 12 um but coming home on a bus and buses are incredibly crowded i had to take the bus to school to junior high school.
0: Talking about a public bus, public not like a bus. school right, bus. Right, right, not
1: like a school bus. you had, had a little bus pass, and you had to pay a nickel. You had to pay a portion of the fare. Um, and, you know, on a public bus, it's always crowded. Um, and I accidentally stepped on this guy's shoes. He had a beautiful pair of, like, white tennis shoes. An sneakers. adult? And, uh, an older student. Okay. I think he was in high school, though. And I didn't know I stepped on his foot. We're on a bus. <laughs> and he goes, you killed my dog. I was like, sir, I'm sorry. And I was, I took everything literally. <laughs> there are no dogs on this bus. <laughs> <laughs> and he meant that I stepped on his foot and I smudged his sneakers and I didn't say sorry. And he was, I mean, I was frightened. He was threatening to beat me up. And then his buddy taps him and says, Hey, that's Charlie's little brother. Uh, and I avoided that moment, but my heart was racing. So that, that's how things can flare up in such a, such a, such an instant. Uh, it's instantaneous how sort of how people have short fuses I right. mean, it sounds
2: like Charlie was a tough kid.
1: He he was tougher than me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and he could run faster than me. I I mean, I I was blessed with none of the athletic ability in my family. My brother could run and jump. And uh, another funny story is when I get to high school, I played one year of high school football. Um, my brother ran track, and so the coach, the football coach, wanted my brother um, to come from the track team to play football because one of the assistant football coaches was the track coach, and my mom wouldn't let him play football. Um, but I convinced her that I could play, and so the, the track coach said, "Well, that's Charlie's little brother. He's got to be fast." And so, just like you know, we had the football combine this weekend. Um, they lined me up to run the forty. Um, he looks, you know, he clocks me. He says. Run that again. Something's wrong with my clock. Something's wrong with clock. I run it again. He says, "Nope, that's like close to five seconds. You are just slow, son. <laughs> go, go over there." <laughs> so anyway, but but that's that's kind of the backdrop. Uh, we we went much further away though for high school, junior high school, and high school. We were bussed out of our communities. I see. um So we were gosh, like fifteen miles away from home. Oh no, kidding.
0: What so help understand. me understand. So you said your father was a, a building superintendent. Your mm-hmm. mother worked in the daycare, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, f- a facility. Mm-hmm. What was the highest education they had? So my, my dad didn't complete high school. My mom completed high school, maybe did
1: a semester of community college. Um, and then my grandparents, gosh, maybe my paternal grandmother graduated high school, but no one else did. Um, I think the highest uh, grade level for my maternal grandparents who lived with us after my parents got divorced Maybe sixth and seventh grade, respectively. Huh. Um, so not a lot of education. It was, and my I was just told, go to school, do the best you can. But there was no sort of uh, guidance about how to accomplish that. Right. Like, yes, I'll work hard, but what does that look like? How do I study? How do I prepare? How do I, you know, pick which courses I want to take? How do I structure my
0: schedule? What's AP? I had no right. idea what AP was. What's a PSAT? So if your parents aren't the ones that kind of are giving you that guidance, was it yeah. Charlie or where did you no, get that? I guidance? never got
1: it. I just never got it. Uh-huh. Um, I just went to school and got the best grades I could get, um, and I was just clueless about a lot of this stuff until after I graduated high school. It's like, oh, there are these AP classes. Um, there's there are prep courses, but you have to pay for them. Um, but I was kind of clueless going through uh, through high school. Um, I didn't know anything about the ranking system in the class. I mean, I was just totally ignorant. Um, which is scary thinking back now um, and where I am today. But I had no idea. So um, I was going to, my brother joined the Marine Corps um, when he graduated high school and he graduated in 1987. Um, and I graduated in 1989. Somehow I was able to graduate a semester early. I was, I was able to double up on my credits. Um, and so I graduated when I was 17 and I was going to join the Army. My brother joined the Marines. Um, but because I wasn't 18, I needed parental consent. And my mother goes, and this, I'll tell this to anyone, this is the best decision that anybody's ever made on my behalf is like, okay, I'm not going to sign the papers now. When you turn 18, you can do whatever you want to do. And if you want to join at that time, you go right ahead. But well, why don't you just try a semester of college? It's like, okay, how do we do that? And so we're trying to trying to fill out the FASA uh, uh, financial aid forms right. um, and apply to the local college. Five blocks away. So it's like five blocks away, but it's a world away from me, Brooklyn College. Um, it was an easy walk to the school, but it was kind of like there was this almost dividing line. But it's you know, it's not marked, it's, but it's, it's a clear line of demarcation that you're in another neighborhood. Um, the homes are a little better. Um, the school is pristine. Um, and Brooklyn College was established as sort of the, the Harvard of the CUNY system, City University of New York. Okay, um, It's got Ivy on the walls. And so it's, it, it prides itself as being kind of like an Ivy League school, but for city kids, um, immigrants, kids, um, a lot of the Ellis Island kids, par- the second generation would go okay. to Brooklyn College. Um, so I applied and somehow I got in, <laughs> <laughs> And so I went a semester, that, which would essentially have been my last semester of high school, it became my first semester of college. And so I went and I loved it. Um, and I took off from there, but it took me a while to kind of get my, my sea legs. Yeah. Um, but while all this was going on, so back up just a little bit, maybe to the mid eighties before I graduated high school. Um, that's when the crack cocaine epidemic takes place in the Northeast. <clears throat> and it's just insane. Um, I have next door neighbors, guys my age and a little bit older, selling crack. And then I see... Um, guys you grew up with? Guys I grew up with. Guys and, and with let
0: me, I want to hear this story. But so uh, it sounds like sports wasn't a big uh, thing when you were growing up, or at least not for yeah. you, right? No, it, it was. I played a lot. Okay, got it. Maybe yeah, yeah. You just you didn't feel I, like you I, were I excelling. Had,
1: no, no I, no, I was not excelling. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be very clear. No, no, I could catch anything. Like I played third base only because of the reaction time. I couldn't play shortstop because I didn't have the range, Got it. but I had pretty decent reaction time, pretty decent hand-eye coordination. Couldn't run for a, couldn't run a lick, couldn't jump a lick. Got it. And so that ruled out basketball quickly. I didn't, my growth spurt didn't happen until like 11th grade. Um, but basketball is out of the picture for me. I didn't have the quickness or skill level for basketball. Um, didn't really want to play baseball. Football became my favorite sport. Okay, I thought I was going to be a tight end for the New York Jets. So <laughs> uh, it's my favorite football team, and they're horrible to this day. Um, but I grew up a Yankees fan, and Craig Nettles was the third baseman on the great Yankees teams of the 70s, early 80s. Um, so I thought I was going to be the third baseman for the, for the Yankees or a tight end for the New York Jets. The Jets had a tight end in the early 80s, mid-80s, named Mickey Shuler. I am going to be that guy. And then I saw Mark Bavaro play for the Giants. I said, yeah, I could do that. And I was like, you know what? I'm not nearly that tough. <laughs> so, yeah, football was out of the picture.
0: But you're, you're uh, I guess, as a kid growing up, your uh, weekends and kind of nights were spent playing football or baseball or kind of yes. little league, that kind of thing?
1: I, so my, my, my parents were divorced. My dad moved to the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, which in my head, um, probably just lack of familiarity, but was tougher than Flatbush. Okay. Um, it's got, it goes by the moniker, do or die, Betts die. And so it's very tough.
2: Um, it's very hipster now. It's
1: right. So it's, yeah. uh, it's about the like new whole New York. Foods there, it's yeah. Whole Foods. It's um, kind of like they don't have it there, but Central Market. Yeah, right. right? It's it's you know yuppies walking puppies, yeah, stalking, right. walking down the street. <laughs> I was just uh, there a few months. Yeah, ago, yeah. 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 And so I'm, I'm growing up. There, they are really tough guys walking big pit bulls and Rottweilers yeah. on chains. That's that's their leashes are yeah. huge chains.
2: I think it's most deaf. There's one rapper that yeah. Bed is mm-hmm. his his right. big thing. Yeah, I think yeah. it's most yeah. deaf. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it is most deaf. Um but growing up back then, so and I didn't know any of the kids going over there uh, growing up over there. So I'd visit my dad on the weekends and we'd play we've had a softball team called he lived on Jefferson Avenue. We had the Jefferson Avenue Kings. Um and so I played third base in softball. But gosh, just to try to get inroads with the the kids on that side of town, it was tough because I would only see them on the weekends. And, you know, my dad played on the team, and they thought, oh, you're just on the field because it's your dad. Wait till he's gone. We're going to rough you up. And I'm like, gosh, I've got to deal with this in my own neighborhood. <laughs> then i got to come over here on the weekend. I just want to see my dad and play <laughs> a little ball, and i got to deal with these, in my head, tougher kids. Um, so th- that was, and then the crack cocaine epidemic's happening all at the same time. So I'm, I've got this weird adjustment where, you know, I'm having to deal with sort of racial discrimination at my school, on my own tough neighborhood, um, neighbors dealing crack, the effects of victims of crack cocaine use and then this other tough neighborhood uh, where my dad lived and I just want to be a kid right you know and I'm kind of like I'm growing up in Brooklyn I'm, I'm not as naive as leave it to beaver um, or more updated version Carlton on the Fresh Prince of <laughs> Bel-Air um, but you know I'm not I'm not a tough guy so I'm, I'm kind of just a normal trying to be a normal kid in very tough circumstances um, my brother had much more street knowledge and he was much more savvy than I was and He was aware of things. I mean, he would tell me, like, hey, they're dealing crack over there. And I'd blurt out, do you mean they're dealing crack cocaine? (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, I'm I'm that kid.
2: Got it. Were you starting to sort of from the outside see the interaction of your neighborhood and the justice system at this point with the crack cocaine epidemic? A
1: little, very little. I would know that kids would just disappear from the block. And I would hear things about, for some of the older guys, Rikers Island, and I would hear about some of the younger kids, and again, just my ignorance, place called Spoffords, um, and I was like, you know, they would disappear and come back, and I'm like, where were you? And he was like, I was at Spoffords. It's and I, it's a juvenile facility, I think, in the Bronx. Um, but I didn't know at the time; I thought it was some fancy middle school. So again, my my just complete, I was completely naive. And I was like, well, I want to go to Spoffords too. Yeah, sounds, <laughs> right, right, sounds great. Sounds great. Right. You yeah. get to go away. You do they, have to have yeah. right, do they have a football team. They have a football team. Maybe I can make that one. Um, and then they would go no and everybody even if they're like a year older than you and you're taller than them everybody called you shorty and so they would go no shorty you don't you don't want to go to Spofford and then I learned later on it was a juvenile facility it was a very tough place and I had, I wanted no parts of it right so yeah we would have kids just just vanish from the block mm. um, and then just reappear um but so no I didn't I didn't see per se what, what you're referencing no. um, about any differences um I mean I, I saw that, for the kids who were dealing drugs, there were lots of, uh, the police presence was greater. Um, but I didn't see any sort of, uh, from my perspective at 13, I didn't see that. Sure. Just, just criminal justice system yeah. issues.
0: Yeah. And even so, I mean, I think one of the, you know, historical issues we've heard about in New York is like, you know, racial profiling and that mm-hmm. kind of issues. Is that something you encountered at all or not so much? And
1: Not so much me, my, my brother. Um, I had my, I had a few encounters later, um in my mid 20s um but not so much there I and it wasn't the racial issues I encountered were less with the police and more with kids that I went to school with um so in junior high school I went to Cunningham Junior High School and it was viewed as a very good school um and so I ended up going there because my my brother went there but my brother first went to another school called uh, named Marine Park um and it was about you know about another 15 miles away from our school but just in a different location than Cunningham um and he had gotten jumped there um and my mom wanted him to switch schools she petitioned the school board they switched him to Cunningham and she thought that was going to be better it was worse hmm. um, so by the time I come along you know I'm he's I'm in seventh grade he's in ninth grade and he's about to leave go to high school but he tells me keep your head on a swivel watch your back um, and I'm encountering this new world so I go to my you know, elementary school first through sixth grade and it's primarily african-american we had some hispanic kids um mainly puerto rican dominican panamanian um and the phrase we use in new york is latino so uh, i didn't hear hispanic until I came to texas <laughs> um but it was the latino community um but a, sm- a smattering of, of latino kids and some white kids um then when i go to cunningham it's flipped it's got to be 95.5 uh, and there were very few kids from my neighborhood that went there there in my 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 recollections because I thought about it a lot i can remember maybe 20 kids from my neighborhood went there i mean so we would take the bus together and the bus back or the train back so very often we would get chased from the school and when you're getting chased we wouldn't go to the bus stop because you're not going to stand at a bus station so we tried to find some protection and that was the train station so if we could just make it to the train station which was a good gosh half mile away um, and that's a full sprint because uh, I mean, there were bats, sticks, pipes waiting for us after school. And it was, you know, no kidding. Yeah. So I'm, I'm running and I'm, I'm the slowest kid in my neighborhood. Jeez. Um But I was Carl Lewis on those days. There was something, <laughs> something about fear makes you very fast. So I never got left behind on those days.
2: What was the makeup uh, of Cunningham? I was about 95.5 white to black
1: Oh, okay. with some kids from Coney Island, some Latino kids from Coney okay. Island, a
2: lot of, a lot of Puerto Rican. Uh, kids what neighborhood Island. was Cunningham in?
1: Cunningham. I mean, it's hard to say if it's, isn't, there's a main road called Kings highway um, and ocean Avenue. And it's near there. Um, it's actually near where I went to high school, Madison high school, a few years later, um, but not as far out as Coney Island or sheep's head Bay, but a good distance away from, yeah. I am mentioning these names like y'all know them, but it's, it's, it's far enough away from my house where you couldn't just walk home. Got gotcha. your mom. So there was, it was a good way to you could felt safe if you were running. I mean, there were some days where you just ran past the train station and just kept running until you reached a point in the community where you felt like, okay, there's enough of a diverse mix here where I'm okay. They're not going to mm-hmm. come this far down.
0: Right. Um, So you're talking about, you know, at some point as you're getting a little bit older, the the crack cocaine, um, you know, pandemic is mm -hmm. is emerging in New York. You know, what is it that influenced you to say, yeah, that's not for me. I'm going to be doing uh, something else.
1: Yeah. I just, I was never interested. I was just, I was just trying to be a good kid. I was a simple kid. I I loved sports. Um, I loved watching sports. Um, Saturday afternoon, Kung Fu Flicks. That was me. I'm I'm just, I'm really... Carlton Banks from Fresh Prince of Bel Air in Brooklyn, which is not a good thing to be, especially when my mother's like, "You should dress like, that. you should wear argyle sweaters." I was like, "Mother, I have a hard enough time." Yeah, to come get on,
0: it. mom! I need some, I need some jeans and Adidas, mom, or else I'm going to get beat up. I'm already a mark out there. <laughs> So when your, when your parents get divorced, how old are you ballpark? I was about nine. Okay. And, mm-hmm. but it sounds like your dad's still very much a part of your life. Yes. Yes. Okay. Very much so. So from like a male influence standpoint, your brother, your, mm-hmm. your father mm-hmm. are still very much there. Yeah. Maybe sports coaches, that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And
1: I, I was kind of the youngest of the the, the men, the boys in the, in the family. I've had cousins and Queens um, and they were all older. They were, gosh, good eight, nine years older. Um, so I had a lot of folks that I interacted with and we would visit my, cause that's where my maternal grandmother lived with my aunt in Queens and we would go visit them from time to time. Um, and so I was the youngest of that bunch and they were always kind of protective of me. And. I mean, that's where I first learned about rap music was from my older cousins. They'd walk around the house, and like, why are you talking to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, man, I'm lyrics. rapping, you're right? right. To me, it's like, again, I'm completely naive. I'm, like, I'm rapping. I am like, you're just talking to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's going nowhere, by the way.
0: <laughs> so, you know, I think, you know, one of the benefits, you know, I had, my, my father is first-generation attorney, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know me and my sister mm-hmm. and my father. But growing up, there was never... Uh, that I wasn't going to go to college. Right. Uh, for my sister, too, it was just like, mm-hmm. what college am I going to go to? And, right. and that's nice because my mindset was like, okay, I got to do now uh, things so I can have those options later. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. sounds like growing up, it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion that you're going no. to college. No, it
1: was, gosh, we had this sort of, I don't want to say it's traditional, but it's conventional enough of a mindset that the way to get to the middle class is to get a civil servant's job. And mm-hmm. so I was told, you know, graduate high school, and this is before I made my army college decision, that that point in my life, Uh, you you take the battery of tests for the city, and work for MTA, or or bridge and tunnel worker, some sort of civil service job with a steady paycheck, healthcare, and a pension, and and that's how you make it out, Um, and that was my family's mindset, Um, until I said, mom, I don't think that's for me, and we had discussions about that, and I mean, essentially, though, the, the army is the same kind of pathway, that's Sure. Another gateway or pathway to the middle class. Um, but I, I chose that one semester of college and I, I just absolutely fell in love with sort of political science, political history, political theory, philosophy. Um, one of my favorite books, and I tell this every time I talk to students and they look at me like I'm crazy, is John Locke's Second Treatise on Government. Just love that book. And I, I love the influence of the Enlightenment. Um, and that just this spark in me came about and I just loved learning um but was it yeah. a
0: single professor or something they just kind of tripped it or triggered it for you um, or do you remember
1: it was it was well we had this class and so you know we had some schools don't have a sort of structured core curriculum but we did and core one was um a lot of philosophy and so we had to read the Re- plato's republic and so that jumped out at me um the need by virgil um and so that that sort of line of thinking read a lot of socrates aristotle and then I, I was able to take some of my um, classes, in my major political science, but just fell in love with that stuff. Fell in love with the, like I said, the Enlightenment, the influence the Enlightenment had on the framers of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence. Um, but it wasn't one single professor; it was just a line of books, and I would just spend time reading. And I were you an
0: avid reader wrong. growing up? And were you? No, just
1: no. I mean, my father, as as punishment after we got too old, sort of for meetings, he was like, "You're gonna in the summertime. Like if I did something wrong, you write a book report for." Him. <laughs> and he would make us write book. Re- yeah. No, that's, that's nuts. Wait, that's was a great write- idea. I'm yeah, going to start is, doing that tomorrow. I grew up yeah, and a friend's he, dad would do the yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah, to him. He would be like, you're going to read something that you're not going to read in school. And now so, he just won a Nobel prize, Justin yeah. or something. No, like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. no um, not at all. Well, we would have to read books that I probably today are still not assigned. It would, you know, one of the books would be something like, Oh gosh, why am I drawing a blank? it?" the invisible man. I'm trying to think of okay. the name of the, the author, but I'm drawing a blank on that right now. Um, yeah, I'm drawing a blank. I think it's, it's not Emerson. Gosh, I can't think, I can't think of the, other I, way. I,
0: I know what you're talking about. I just yeah, can't yeah,
1: replace it either. Yeah. But yeah, it's books like that. You sure. Just have to read books that just, And that, that my dad was big on like, hey, you're going to learn, this is history in school, but there's a broader version of history and I want you to learn it. And so I'm punishing you by reading, making you read this stuff, but it's going to actually broaden your horizon. Got it. Um, so did that, um, I lost track of the question.
0: Yeah, no. So it was, you know, kind of what influenced you, uh, you know, to get into political science mm-hmm. and government, it sounds like you, you really loved the framers and Socrates, which mm-hmm. is kind of a foundation for the rule of law. Absolutely. Is that what triggered you to say, Hey, the law might be a good uh, place for me to land? <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> that happened a little <laughs> later. That happened a little later. So, um, I'm in Brooklyn college and I'm, I'm, I'm along, um, that didn't come, and I was, so, in the summertime, I would work with my dad sometimes, and he would still try to get me to, like, you need to get some, some blue-collar work in you, so we would, I would work with him clearing out apartments, um, or I would serve as a, a doorman at, as, at his apartment building, um, but no, so the the sort of spark about law school came at the end of my graduate school program, so I was, grad, grad did grad work in political science, I was, and this is where a specific professor, um, Professor Rodolfsky, I think his name was, um, says, hey, there's this graduate internship program at the Capitol, Albany, New York. I want you to apply for it. I was like, all right, sure. So I applied for it, um, and the interview was in Albany. And so i I had a car at the time, my, my first car, and I had owned a car for like 19 years. It was a 1996 green Toyota Camry. There you go. And so, yeah, so I drive to, uh, to Albany for this interview, and there's just a panel of these folks who work at the Capitol, um, you know, everyone from the Ways and Means Committee, from specific members' offices, and they're conducting interviews. And what I learned that day, which I didn't know going in, they were going to select 10 graduate students from around the state for this program. So it's a very competitive, highly selective program. Um, and I was like, gosh, I go in with this book and it's, it's by a guy named Reginald Lewis. Um, and he was the CEO of a company called TLC Beatrice. Um, and he was the first black Billy there. And I think he was, a Harvard MD, uh, excuse me, MBA JD. Um, and so I was, I was like, okay, I'll read this book. And so I was putting my book away and one of the panel members said, what you got there young fellow? Like, oh, it's just a book. It's a biography. And he's like, what's, what's, what's the title? Maybe I've heard of it. I said, oh, I'm certain you haven't. Um, <laughs> she says, no, tell us. And th- the entire panel of folks interviewing me are white folks. And I'm like, oh, God. And so the title of the book, and it's just a sad title, but it's a great book. It's called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun?
0: <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, this interview is over.
1: I, I'm just going to go through the motions, and I'm going to drive back to Brooklyn and tell my mom they, they declined me. Um, so I get a call, like, I don't know, a week or so later, and it's like, hey, you've been accepted. It's like, holy cow. Um, but going into it, everybody around, the, the buzz on the program was like the the premier spot or slot with the Ways and Means Committee. That's what you want to get. And if you don't get that, you're, you're pretty much a loser. And I was like, oh, well, I want Ways and Means. Now that, I, now that I know I'm going, I want Ways and Means. Sure. Um, I didn't get Ways and Means. I'm so like, oh, must be one of the loser <laughs> grad interns. Um, and by the way, so you go live in Albany, for the, for the entire session. And we have session every year in New York. Um, so I was going to be in the 1996 legislative session um, and you get paid a stipend and you get college credit, grad, grad school credit. Yeah. So it was a great
2: deal. Yeah, sure. Um, How long is session there? Just curious. It can be,
1: it can be six months. Um, the year I went, the budget wasn't passed until about, gosh, nine months in. So okay. I was, I was up there right until or eight months in, I was right up there in, uh, in Albany until the fall semester started. Okay. Of 96. Yeah.
0: And day to day, what are you doing uh, during the yeah, session? So
1: I work. so I got put in the majority leader's office. I was in the So it was weird. It was the council to the majority leaders. It's a non-lawyer position, but it's a, it's the standing staff for the majority leader mm. of the New York state assembly, which is the house. Um, and so day to day I'm, I'm listed as a legislative intern. And so I go, I'm, I'm given my assignment for five committees I go to committee meetings. I'm a representative for the majority leader's office. I have to take notes. I have to express the majority leader's position, um, count votes, meet with lobbyists. Um, so it was very cool. That sounds um, great. Yeah. yeah, no, it was a great. And I, you write some policy papers. I got to make presentation to members. Um, you sit in caucus meetings. You're there on the floor giving advice in real time. A little bit of advice that they would let a grad intern give. Um, but it was just a great window into to state government. And that was the first time it really opened my eyes um, to the power of state government, the government closest to you, and how much more it affects you than the federal government. Um, and I was just cool because every, everything in school is about the federal government, um, but it's state government that makes the laws that really affect you—the police powers. Um, so this is just great eye-opening experience for me. Um, and it was in that ex- from that experience, I was like, well, I think I want to do that with my life. And if I'm going to be a lawmaker, so I want to be in the legislature. If I'm going to be a lawmaker, I should go to law school. And that's what kind of spurred me to go to law school and um and so I worked for Michael Bragman he was from upstate New York from the Syracuse area um so sort of an old school and they kind of really don't exist much anymore conservative democrat um it was a great office to work in um and so after I complete he let me stay on after the session and so I I came back and came back in August finished up grad school applied to law school I wanted to get out of New York um my, my recollection, I was on the wait list for a Temple. I wanted to go to Howard. I thought that was far enough out outside the city. Um, they turned me down. <laughs> so be it. Um, but and so as soon as I got the, the letter from Texas Southern, I was like, I'm not going to think about another school. I'm just going. So I packed up my car, drove down 995. My brother was in Florida. This time he had finished his time in the Marine Corps. He was in the first Gulf War, He relocated to Florida. Stayed there in Orlando for a couple of days, and then drove across on I ten to Texas and to Houston, and, and went to law school. Um, yeah, so that's how that's how I got to Texas.
0: So you're in Houston. Uh, this is uh, late nineties, early this is
1: 97, August ninety seven.
0: Okay, and uh, you know, some people love law school. Other people just yeah. kind of survive it. Kind right. of, uh, how, where did you fall?
1: First semester was definitely about survival. <laughs> sure, <laughs> because and, and more so about it wasn't the. The content. It was just getting used to the school. So you kind of get used to your undergrad professors, what they want, and how to give it to them. You learn the material. Same thing with grad school. I didn't. I didn't know how to do that for my first semester of law school, uh, mainly because um, they all of the tests were kind of the MBE style. So they went to multiple multiple choice testing. And I was like, I'm not a multiple choice kind of guy. If you let me write it out, I can understand. I can explain it to you. Right. But you give me a choice between two not so great answers. I might pick the wrong one every time, but that doesn't mean I don't know the material. So sure. I had to get used to that. Um, and once I got used to that, then it was fine. Then it was then it was enjoyable.
0: Got it. And did it become uh, clear to you at some point kind of what type of law you wanted to practice? I know you went to the JAG after mm-hmm. that, but kind of mm-hmm. what were you thinking as you were going through law school? Um,
1: I was still at that point, even in my first year, I was still thinking I was going to go to law school, and come back to New York and become a legislator. I was going to be state rep for my, my community. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there was a retired Marine major in my section. Um, and he asked me, he says, do you ever think about um, JAG? And I was like, what, Tom Cruise or, or the TV? Cause at that <laughs> time there was also a hot TV show called yeah. JAG. Mm-hmm. That's right. And all he did was fly planes. And I was like, no, I don't want to fly a plane. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> like,
0: not sure that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
1: Um, so I said, okay. I'll, he says, well, will you agree to meet the Oso with me? I said, what's well, an Oso?" He said, officer, selection officer. Officer recruiter, downtown Houston. I said, "Okay, I'll go." And so I met with Captain Gray, who was the Oso in Houston at that time. Said, "Okay, I'm interested, but I don't know." Um, I put in a package. Um, I got declined that first time. And again, I didn't realize how selective it was. They, I didn't know how many marine, how many folks they took that year for the program nationwide. Um, And I was like, "I still want to get back to serving." There was something in me says I want to serve the country, and so that I thought about it. Came back to Brooklyn between first and second year. Um, I said I'm going to commit myself to that and I'm going to go and Jag. Um, so I came back second year. I worked um, for a small husband and wife law firm, employment law firm, plaintiffs, um, and I was I got a, my job was to write summary judgment responses. Um, and it was and his name was Gordon Cooper. He's retired now, and he was a nice man but a firm man. And he, when he got mad at you, he talked like a sailor um, and not Popeye. <laughs>
0: um, but but he,
1: he forced me to learn the hard way. He would just give me a box of materials and say, come back with a product. And it'd be depositions, interrogatories, all the discovery materials and come back with a response. Um, and I came back with a response. And I, I still remember to this day, he's like, boy, this is really pretty writing. But you're not mentioning any evidence. You're going to get me kicked out of court. And my clients are going to file a grievance against me. And so he, 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 in very colorful language, explained, hey, you have to cite to the deposition. You have to cite to the interrogatories and doc- documents produced. And, you know, I, I had a little bit of civil procedure at that time, but it didn't click with me until that conversation. It's like, oh, that's that's what that stuff means, yeah. and this is how you use it. And so I, I was working for Gordon Cooper. I was on law review, so I was working on my, my law review article and taking a full load of classes, um, and I was working out with the Marine. So I would go to Memorial Park in Houston um, three days a week at that time. First semester, second semester it increased, but we would run on Monday, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at Memorial Park. And then, as I got more serious, and I was so I was training to go to OCS. You have to show up in shape. You can't go there and get in shape. Um, so we ran three miles Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, we ran uh, six miles on Tuesday, nine miles on Thursday. And I'm doing this all before class. And just a, another. other litany of exercises that the enlisted sort of counterpart to the OSO had me do. Um,
0: I'm impressed. I don't think I worked out, but like twice in law school. (laughs) So running nine miles before class. It was tough. I'd go drained, you know. Um, So that was, that was a tough year. I
1: was really focused my second year law school. Um, And then I applied again. I got accepted. They accepted 12 people nationwide to the program. Uh. Um, and so I took off June 5th of 1999 for a 10 week, they call it PLC combined platoon leaders class combined program. So at the end of that, I would get my commission because I was a college grad. I also, I went there with guys who weren't college grads and they would have to wait till they graduate to get their commission. Um, so I'm there and I'm, of course, I'm one of the slowest people in my, my (laughs) platoon. And I got yelled at the entire 10 weeks. It was tough, but it was it was it was worth it. It was it was a character building experience. um, it let me know that I could start something and finish something that was extremely difficult and tough. Um, yeah, it was it was a tough time, but it was good for me. Um, but it didn't I think the key for me in terms of the law going through that experience, it forced me to make decisions faster, because uh, they would always put us in these, I think they call tactical decision games, TdGs. And they, so, you have a, an objective you have to achieve. And no matter what you do, people are going to die. So, you have to make decisions. And the slower you are in making a decision, the more people that die. And so, I got used to getting you know, to thinking faster and making decisions faster. And so, that helped me in the law. It's like, okay, yes, we have to be deliberative, um, but you still have to make a decision. And I got used to making quicker decisions. And so, that, that helped me prepare and study for my third year law school. Um, Finished law school, took the Texas bar exam in July 2000 at the old Astrodome. Um, and then went on active duty the following year. I had to go, so I had to go, my office, my OCS class was in Quantico. Um, what my OSO didn't tell me. My OSO changed, by by, by the way. So it was uh, Captain Jesse Mendez at the time, and he's from San Antonio. And I, I ran into him at the store last year. Um, he went to AM and And I said, well, what's this follow-on school you keep talking about? It's called the basic school. He says, oh, it's just like college. He went to A&M. So I was like, maybe your college, but <laughs> not my college. Um, so I had to go back for six more months of platoon commander training before I could go practice the law. Um, so I go back to Quantico, I do that. So it's like two weeks of classroom training, two weeks practical application in the field. And we do that in tandem until six months is up. Um, and then I went to Naval Justice School in Newport, Rhode Island. We go to sort of UCMJ school with the Navy and the Coast Guard. So all the naval forces go together. We don't have our own JAG school. And we don't have technically a JAG Corps in the Marines because all of us are Marines and, uh, fire. I mean, not firefighters,
0: trigger pullers um, by training. So we're all infantrymen. Um, And and that's interesting because I I guess for some people who may not know kind of what JAG does, I mean, you're essentially mm -hmm. a lawyer within the military justice Mm -hmm. system, right? Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it sounds to me that you're every bit of a Marine and are prepared and trained to go to Mm -hmm. war if necessary. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes, I mean, I went through and... Live fire exercises at the basic school, and so you you're, you're training at night with tracer rounds, and those light up, and you have to stay in your lane, or else a live round's going to hit you. Um, so you're doing these we call them maneuver warfare exercises at night, and you can hear those bullets whizzing by your head. Um, and you have, and they, they they sort of give you this saying, um, "I'm up, they see me; I'm down." That's how long you should be up before you would get shot by the enemy, and you have to so. They, they simulate fire coming at you, but there's live rounds going past you from your fellow Marines. Um, and you have to do this run for like 300 yards, full tactical gear. And you have to hope that everybody's shooting straight. Jeez. <laughs> and so it was wonderful. Um, but yeah, so I go to Naval Justice School, and then I get stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And I'm a, so they, as the Marines said, you're, you're a Marine, but we let you play lawyer. And so you're a, you're you're assigned as a judge advocate. Um, and so I get assigned to the defense shop. So I'm a criminal defense lawyer my first four years. Um, I do criminal defense and legal assistance. So everything's civil, but I can't represent the Marines, we say out in town, because I'm not a North Carolina lawyer. But I can give them advice on anything from, um, and Marines, young, young, especially the young men, are notorious for getting paid on Friday and they're broke on Monday. And they would, at that time, it was like, before Fast and the Furious, but it was very much like that. They would take these souped up Honda Civics <laughs> and get rims that were much more in value than the car. Um, so they'd go into debt from these local shops that would put rims on their cars and they'd get into these horrible contracts with serious interest rates. And then they would come to us and we'd try to have to get them out of it. And, right. and so that was legal assistance. It could have been cell phone contracts. We could give them divorce advice, but well, we couldn't represent them in the divorce matter. We could help them reach a settlement though, and it would be binding, mm, so we could do that. So I did a, a smattering of that, but my main job was as a criminal defense lawyer. And are you trying cases in uh, the, uh, in the, I guess, martial law, right? Yeah, yeah martial you know, court, law, martial, so. court, court martial, martial law. Yeah, yep. court martial, court um, martial, court So we, it's, it's all criminal cases. Um, and in the military system, there's not a, we don't have a district attorney. So charges are initiated by the commander for the unit. Mm. So if a Marine there's an allegation that a Marine did something wrong, the commander would initiate charges, send it to the trial shop, the prosecution shop. Uh, so we did have prosecutors, but just not a DA that, and there was no indictment process technically. Uh, for misdemeanor charges, no, the commander just initiated charges, the prosecutor decided, okay, yep, let's go forward with that. Uh, for felony charges, we had an article 32 system, which was kind of like um, a grand jury system. I think it's actually a little bit better. Um, instead of a panel of grand jurors, it's uh, another JAG lawyer sits and hears evidence and makes a probable cause determination. So I thought that was actually pretty cool that you had someone trained in law making a probable cause determination for our felony cases. So that was very cool. But um, I tried 12 cases, first chair, I'm in my first four years, Um, and then
2: all of our pleas.
0: um, These are bench trials or jury trials? both both. Okay.
1: both yeah they're both
2: but the jurors are active duty the,
1: the jurors are active duty they come from the command <laughs> the same command as the marine charged with violating the offense and the commander picks the panel
2: the panel or the jury the panel how many ends on a panel
1: oh gosh it depends if it's a it depends if it's a special court martial which is a misdemeanor case or General court martial to okay. the felony, and the difference is special court martial is a lower level, lower level commander. General court martial, the general initiates the charges. Okay, um, give us a flavor of the type of offenses we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so it could be anything from so not just possession of drugs, but wrongful use of drugs. So you can be charged with using drugs, mm. um, in the Marines. Uh, but then you have every kind of civil crime that you can have: rape, robbery, murder, um, assault. Um, we had sort of a catch all charge that allows us to bring in certain federal offenses. So we had child porn offenses. I, I had a child porn case when I was in. Um, but everything you can think of in the civilian world, it exists in the military world. And then we have military specific offenses um, violation of a lawful order from a commander, mm-hmm. um, so offense, and un, you know, unauthorized absence, AWOL. Um, and those are sort of the minor offenses. We also had, um, so you have. Special court-martial and general court-martial, those are in court. Um, there's also below that a range of punishment options that a commander has. It could be called office hours, Article 15, I'm just going to punish you. Um, but the Marine has the right to reject that forum and can take it to a special court-martial or decide, hey, you know what, I think I did it. I'm just going to take the punishment from the commander. Um, right. So, And then there's a special court-martial, which is kind of like, a hybrid but it's below there's no military judge in a special court martial but
2: can it's, can the local authorities uh sort of preempt y'all or do y'all it depends, have
1: so it depends where the offense took place if it's on base it's full military okay field. if it's off base then usually there's a memorandum of understanding oh, okay um, yeah so it just
0: depends mm. um, so you're in the jag four years mm-hmm. you practice i mean you try 12 trials mm-hmm. uh it's time to get out i mean just you know, for those who are not lawyers, right, in the mm-hmm. civil private practice to try 12 cases in four years, unless you're a district attorney uh, or assistant district attorney is just unheard of. It's so, pretty rare. Yeah. So you, had not not only that, but you have civil experience kind of, you know, doing this counseling role. You also have mm-hmm. essentially criminal defense experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, when do you get out of the JAG?
1: I get out in 2004. Um, I had to decide what I was going to do. Um, I was going to come back to Texas. I wasn't going to take another bar exam. So my plans of becoming a legislator in New York were, were gone. i had become <laughs> a litigator at that point, so I looked for litigation jobs in Texas. I, I first landed in the Bell County area where Fort Hood is in Killeen. Um, there's a, a firm, and they have a, they have a couple offices here, the Carlson Law Firm. Sure. So I was a plaintiff's lawyer when I first got out, and I worked in Bell County, Coryell County, Williamson. What year is this, Judge? This is 2004. This is around August 2004. I worked there for about 18 months, close to two years. Um, then a friend of mine, I don't know if you know the name, Mark Cooper. He works at name and Howell. Yep. Um, so we were at Campus Unit at the same time. Um, he was a little bit before me, so he got out before I did. And he had a job at Ball and & Weed. And so we stayed in contact with one another. He says, hey, we have an opening here at Ball & Weed. There's a lawyer here named Bill Ford who's looking for another associate. Would you like to apply? I said, sure. Send me a resume. So I meet Bill Ford. I have an interview. Hit it off. I'm in San Antonio in early 2006 and been here ever since.
0: So just to think about kind of anything is possible. So before 2006, really, you had no ties to San Antonio, correct? (laughs) And there's only, I guess there's four or five, uh, you know, district judges in the Western district of Texas, very selective coveted positions. So Mm -hmm. to go from 2006, not having any connections to San Antonio to being one of our Western district judges in San Antonio, it's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. It's,
1: it's it's a crazy story. Uh, I I remember reading Colin Powell's book. um, and he had just all these amazing events happen in his life and people he would run into who had just a tremendous impact. So I'm at bill Ford's office and I have this case, um, and it has this overlap with criminal law. And Bill Ford says, well, let's call Roy Barrera. And that's how I meet Roy Barrera, working on this crazy civil case. Where This is Junior or Junior? Junior, Junior, yep. Roy Barrera, Junior. And we got this crazy civil case. And the DA is looking at this guy for, uh, for insurance fraud. Because um, my guy sold, he was the middleman in an insur- RV insurance business. And so he would you know, work with the local salesman from around the state collect the policies, he gets a, a cut, and then he sends it on to different insurers based upon the needs of the folks in their RV concerns. Um, and they thought he was taking money off the top improperly because um, he did have a legal cut. Um, and so I'm, I am mean Roy Pereira Jr. And so we, we work on this case. We And he's know,
0: Republican, a Bear County Republican at chairman the, at that yes, point.
1: Yes, yes. And so um, we settled the case successfully for um, the client and charges are never brought criminally. We convinced them that there's no case there. Um, and then uh, Richard Price. At that time, he was former district judge because he had been appointed, I think, by Governor Perry, and I think maybe he lost in 2006. And then he was a mediator, and he was officing, uh, had office space at Bill Ford's office at Ball and Wheat. And so that's how I met Richard Price. And because it saved my clients money and... He was good for both sides in mediation. I used him as my mediator, and I t- I saved costs, too, because I didn't have to get separate office space because we just used our offices. Um, so I, n- I had a number of cases with him, and he saw me in the hallway one day, and he says, hey, Tim Johnson for County Court 5 is going to step down. Um, you should think about running. I said, you're absolutely crazy. <laughs> if I'm going to be anything in government, it's going to be a legislator-, legislator. So maybe I'll run for the Texas House one day, but I, I got a job I got. I, get, I don't have time for thinking about being a judge, and nobody's going to listen to me anyway. So that's a bad idea, sir. I don't know what you think you're seeing. <laughs> and so we, we talk. He convinces me that I should think it over. I, I think it over, and I ultimately decide, because um, Tim Johnson stepped down way in advance of that election, like in t- 2009, so the county commissioners would appoint. Right. Um, so I go to the county commissioners. Um, I meet Kevin Wolfe at the time. He's my county commissioner. He says, I'll support you, but you're not going to get the appointment. But you just need to get your name out there. I asked Roy to to work my campaign with me. He did, um, and so that's how that kicked off. I ran for the two thousand and ten general election for County Court Five. Somehow I win. I worked my tail off going around Bear County trying to meet everyone, um, and then I became a County Court judge. My first week, I had three uh, jury trials. Mm. Um, I think I think some of the local criminal defense lawyers wanted to test the new judge because, in their minds, I was just a civil guy. They like kind of wrote off my sure. my military. Criminal defense experience. I said, "No, guys, I've got some criminal defense experience, um, and I did criminal defense work at the call some law firms. So I did plaintiff mm-hmm. civil stuff and then criminal defense in those counties. Um, so I've still had some Texas criminal defense experience too."
0: Um, Let me stop you for a second. So yeah. if, if we have lawyers who are interested in making the jump, uh, either to politics or to the bench, so you call Commissioner Wolf, and and what's that call? Is it, "Hey, I want to be a judge," or kind of walk me yeah, through that? No, so I, <laughs>
1: Funny story is uh, I heard I heard a story because John Cornyn came from Ball and Wheat and he was a state district court judge before he went on to the Texas Supreme Court and Attorney General and become a senator. Um, I heard a story that he walked into Red McCombs' office with his best suit on and said, "I'm going to be a district court judge." So I said, "I'm, I'm going to try in my own way to duplicate that." I put on my best suit and my uh, you know my American uh, flag lapel pin and go down to the Republican Party Bear County office and walk in and they go who are you? I said, I'm Jason Pulliam, and I want to be a county court of law judge, and they're like, okay, and I said, <laughs> I want to meet the chairman, um, and so Roy wasn't the chairman at that time, I, I, I can't remember, it was Richard Langlois, that's right, I became the chairman at, at that time, but Roy had maybe just rolled off, um, so I met him, and he's like, who are you, kid? <laughs> Fine, you, we'll put, put your name on the ballot, but um, I talk, had talked with Kevin Wolf at that point, so I, I I can't remember if I called him or somebody called on my behalf. Maybe it was Roy that called on my behalf. I meet Kevin Wolf. He says, okay, I'll support you. And, you know, good for him helping me out. He kind of, to the extent he could, cleared the pathway for me having a primary challenger. Um, Because just in context, this is the first midterm election for the Obama administration. And the Tea Party's swollen up nationally. So there's some idea that there could be a wave election for Republicans. Um, so a lot of folks were trying to get in to win a Republican primary, thinking if I could just get through the primary I could win the general. Um, but to the extent they could, they cleared the pathway. So I didn't have a primary challenger for county court five, win the nomination and I was able to run. Um but I had a Democratic challenger and um a libertarian challenger that year. So my margin of victory was very narrow for that election. Wins a win. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a sliver, (laughs) let me tell you. Um so but I I I I'm on County Court five. Um my goals are trial the cases, move the docket, and I made an agreement with Judge Peoples, who was at that time the um, administrative judge for the 4th Judicial District. I said, I'd like the county court at law on um, number 5 can hear civil cases as well. It's not restricted statutorily to just your criminal cases. I'd like to do that. He says, okay, my, my only condition is it can never interfere with your, with your criminal docket. I said, okay, sir. So I took about six months. I cleared the criminal docket as best I could. And I went back to him. He says, yes, I'll grant you the authority that I have to hear civil cases. So I can hear civil cases from uh, county courts three and 10, which are the civil only county courts of law, as well as presiding. I didn't have jurisdiction to try um, presiding district presiding cases, yeah. but I could hear motions for summary judgment, challenges to expert, all those well, I
0: mean, you're essentially asking to double your work, Correct. right? Why, right. Why, why would you do that? Um, I enjoyed, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed mean, it. And it just,
1: I mean, not that I was looking towards a future, but I wanted to keep my mind fresh on civil law. Um, I found it fascinating. And so I wanted to hear those cases. And that was one of the promises I made during the campaign too. I said, well, I can, I can give you two judges in one. Got it. Um, you're not restricted if you vote for me. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the distinctions I tried to draw in that race. And so I wanted to fulfill that promise. When 2014 and at the end of the 2014 election, so there was, Catherine Stone stepped down off the fourth court, right? Sandy, Brian Marion's running for chief. She wins. And so that creates that vacancy on the fourth court. So right after my win, I had some folks coming to talk to me about, you should put in for that vacancy. I was like, are you crazy? again, like my Richard Price conversation, are you crazy? I'm not, I'm not going on that court. Um, I just won this election. I made a promise and so, no, you really need to consider it. And so I get a call from, um, again, just meet amazing people. Roy Barrera puts me in touch. Roy Barrera Jr. puts me in touch with a man named John Steen. Sure. Um, and says, okay, I can get you an audience with Governor Perry. Okay. So it's, this is a, an event for Governor Perry at John Steen's house. He says he's going to come through that door. He's expecting you to hand him his resume. Just greet him politely and let him get on his way. Don't hold him up. Okay. Perry walks through the door, and it's like, oh, my God, that's Governor Perry. And I said, here's my resume, you know. And he says, okay, I understand you've got something for me. I said, yes, I do, sir. And he walks on, and um, I get a call to come to Austin for the interview. And so you have an interview with the government's appointment secretary, appointments director. Um, and this was the day after Christmas 2014. So December 26, 2014. Gosh, the interview in my head lasted like three hours. And it felt like a deposition. And I violated every rule that I ever <laughs> tell to my clients going into a deposition. Like, if there's dead space, don't fill it in. Only answer a question when it's asked. And he had a great poker face. and So he would ask me a question, and I would answer it. And he would look at me like, that all you got? And so I'd fill in the space. And I'm, oh. I was like, gosh, I, I blew this interview. I, they're never going to take me. And I know that there were other people who put in for the, for the spot. Said, well, oh, I'm I, sure there were plenty. Right, right, exactly, right. So <laughs> right. I was like, you know, it's 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 just not going to happen for me. I'll just I'll just go serve my my time as a county court judge, and I'll be happy. Um, so I get the call on New Year's Eve that hey, the governor's going to announce. You just can't tell anybody um, until he does. Wow. Said, okay, sure. Um, so it was like January, I don't know, seventh of that year. I, I I get the appointment. I have to resign to Nelson Wolf. I'm the county judge, and then like on a Friday and that next Monday, I'm on the fourth court. I lose the 2016 election. Right. Um, and then I, uh, I had met David Pritchard before then, but I didn't know him very well. After the 2016 election, David Pritchard calls me and says, how would you like to work for us? I said, sure, because I need a job. Sure. Um, so I, I go to work for him. I get a call in February of 2017 from the governor's office, Governor Abbott at this time, saying, hey, we we have you on our radar screen. I was like, you do? I said, Sure. Um we're looking for an opportunity just to have you placed somewhere statewide. Um, I said, "Okay." I said, well, "What do you have?" He says, "You can be on the DPS Public Safety Commission. That's the highest commission um for the governor that the governor can make an appointment for." it's like, "Okay, what is a commissioner?" He says, "You oversee the operation of DPS, the 10,000 person DPS." Hmm. Uh commi- I mean, uh Oh gosh. State troopers, sure. driver's license offices, all DPS. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, So I said, okay. So I did that for two years while I worked for Pritchard. And that's not a paid job. You just, you just serve on a five member commission. There's one chairman for additional commissioners. Um, And the, one of the key parts of that job for us was um, we are the first level administrative appeals when there's like a termination event or a state mm-hmm. trooper, they get to the challenge it, they bring it to the commission, and we hear those appeals to determine if the commission, I mean, if the direct DPS director's termination decision was correct. And that was very good. Um, but I, so Good
0: training ground for employment cases are you right, hear right. now. Ab- absolutely, <laughs> absolutely.
1: And employment cases and administ- sort of administrative law and what an uh, administrative body does and sure. substantial evidence and all that stuff. Um, and so I started getting calls about hey you know Trump, Trump Trump has won by this time um there's a vacancy in San Antonio in February of 2018 the the vacancy was originally in Austin Sam sparks stepped down right um and but the vacancy was moved to San Antonio um,
0: I don't know if like work allocation basically number of cases Is I, that- I
1: just don't I, I just know that it was moved. And Is I that why Pittman was kind of split in time there at some correct. point? Okay. Yeah. And, and Pittman moved to Austin. Okay. And so the Sparks vacancy was then moved here to be filled. Got gotcha. you. That's correct. Um, so I put hmm? in. break. No. Okay. Sorry. I thought you had a. 10
2: 1130. 1130. 1130. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay.
1: Um, so I, um, I apply. Uh, you have an interview with a, a body of attorneys from across the state. They're known as the Federal Judicial Evaluation Committee. It's like 40 lawyers from across the state. And David Pritchard is one of them, right? David Pritchard is one of them. He had to recuse when I went for my interview. Um, There are retired judges, current judges. Um, By that time, um, I'm seeing Lamont Jefferson, but it's Wallace Jefferson's on the committee. Tom Phillips, both former Texas Supreme Court judges on the committee. Um, district attorneys, and then civil litigators from across the state. Um, And they pepper you about every area of law um, for about an hour. Um, And they work you over pretty good.
2: Did anyone help prepare you?
1: Um, Not really. I mean, so you have to fill out an application, and it's the Cornyn-Cruz Federal Judicial Evaluation Committee. And you fill out this 30-page application, you submit it. Um, Everything about your life, every paper you may have written or co-authored, um, every speech you may have given, um, appearance that may have appeared on Facebook or social media. You have to identify that and submit it. Um, and then you have your interview if they grant you an interview. And then based on this interview, the committee ranks candidates to send to the senators. And then the senators determine who they want to interview in Washington, D.C. I get a call from, uh, both Cornyn and Cruz. They want to interview me in Washington. I fly up to Washington in like May of
0: 2018. Um, is anybody guiding you, basically saying, all right, this is what you need to be prepared for? These are the type of questions, yeah. substantively, this is your, you know, that kind um, of thing.
1: Not, yes and no. Um, no nothing official. Um, I had gotten to meet some of the folks who ended up becoming uh, district court judges across the state as well, who were just a little bit ahead of me in the process, and said, well, hey, this, these are the types of questions Senator Cornyn likes to ask, and these are the kinds of questions Cruz likes to ask, and this is what you're going to find. And so based on that, I would kind of like, okay, I, I kind of know John Cornyn because he knows David Pritchard. He's from San Antonio. Um, I don't think I had met Cruz personally. I had seen him on a couple of occasions very early on when he when he first started running, he was running for attorney general of the state. So I got to meet him at a few um, Republican events, uh, but nothing substantive. Um, so I go up, I go up there and um, have my interviews and, in, of course, our senators have very different personalities, and their, their, their questions have a different focus. John Cornyn was focused on sort of the nuts and bolts, practical app, application of law, moving your docket, running a court, um, and Cruz had, had much more uh, broader conversation about judicial philosophy, what informs your thinking, um, and so it was very, very interesting uh, dichotomy. Um, I know we're short on time, but quick story: I'm, I'm there, so you're there, you're in the hall of the Senate. Uh, my meeting with Cruz was supposed to be like, I don't know, 11.30. I had my meeting with Cruz before Corning that day. Um, I'm walking down the hall with my fiance. I'm very early. And then this young man comes barreling down the hallway and goes, are you Jason? And I was like, who's asking? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I don't know what time it was, but it was way before my meeting time. The senator will see you now. I was like, well, I'm not ready. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I have I'm, a whole process right, here. I, I want to look at my notes one more time. <laughs> and so you, I come in and... This door opens, and then there's, there's Senator
0: Cruz. And You're in the Russell building at this point. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. Is, yeah. I'm
1: just wandering around, just <laughs> taking my time, getting my thoughts together, and then I'm ushered in. Um, there's the chief counsel for the senator and maybe two other members of his staff. And, and they, But Cruz directs the questions. He knows exactly what he wants to know out of you. Um, they're there taking notes, but it's really his show, and you can tell he knows what he wants to get out of this interview. Is um, it cordial or is it uh, very cordial? Okay. He's is, he is incredibly nice. Um, and he has been incredibly supportive and good to me. Um, but he just, I mean, literally his first question was kind of like when, where we started was like, how does a kid from Brooklyn come to Texas? And then how do you end up going to the local Republican party? Tell me about that. Um, and it's just, I've told this story before. So it's not like I'm revealing anything is there's a sort of this mural. He has this great portrait of president Reagan above his sofa And I catch it out of the corner of my eye, and I know my audience, and I say, Senator, I I have this vivid recollection of uh, President Reagan exhibiting great leadership against Muammar Gaddafi. And I'm like, you know, this guy's 11 years old. But I do remember that, and it's like, you know, we had problems with him and um, certain activities he was engaged in. And so I remember the bombing, and it stopped. And that was an indication of great leadership to me. And he nods his head, and I was like, oh, this is going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> well played. <laughs> well played. I, I read the moment right. Um, so, I, so you have your interviews with the senators. You come back. Things kind of go dark. And then in, like, July of 20, it's still 2018, um, I get a call from, and by that time I'm, I have recognized when 202 is calling, area code 202. It's the White House Counsel's Office, and they say, hey, the president wants to begin the process of nominating you vacancy. Now you have to go through the FBI background check and start filling out all the documentation. That takes another, gosh, we go from August until like almost February going through the FBI background process and then I'm nominated March 5th of 2019. Then I have to go back to D.C. for my Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. Um, that's like in May. Um, get voted out of committee um, and then it's July 2019. Senator Cornyn, I think, the way I understand it, reaches out to Senator McConnell, who was the majority leader at that time, to invoke cloture on my nomination. Mm -hmm. All debates cut off. um, And the word was Cornyn wanted to ensure that all of the Texas nominees got confirmed. And so there was a block of people, but most of them were Texas nominees. And then July 31st, got my confirmation vote. Mm -hmm. Got my commission, which is actually the document that appoints me from the president Mm -hmm. on August 5th. Judge Garcia, Chief Judge Garcia swore me in, and I started working August 9th. Wow.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you kind of, and this is a reflective question, I hope, but, you know, in in the law, we have, you know, causation, and there's like the but for, right, Mm -hmm. test. Like, but for this, this wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you thought about, because, like, the the timeline is extraordinary, right? To have Mm -hmm. no ties to Texas in 2006, Mm -hmm. to be sitting in uh, Senator Cruz and Senator Cornyn's office, I mean, 10 to 12 years later is phenomenal. I mean, that that's just extraordinary. Um, You know, people think politics, well, I've got to know all kinds of people and I need to be Mm -hmm. from an area, but I mean, you went from zero to literally at the top of the heap there. So, but for what, I mean, what was that kind of, if there was a moment or a few that you think kind of were so impactful in that journey?
1: I I definitely think uh, just fortuitous meeting of Roy Barrera Jr. um, Him agreeing to work with me, um, Kevin Wolf's support, um, meeting John Steen and getting his support. Um, and then, gosh, so in preparation for my um, fourth court interview with the appointments director, um, and I don't know, how I can't remember t- right now how it came about. I will later. I had sort of this opportunity to meet with someone who previously served as the appointments director, and mm-hmm. I was able to go through a mock interview. <clears throat> Uh, and then I still violated every tenant. Nobody told me. <laughs> but I was at least aware. So sure. th- there were these weird moments where, I, and I don't know how these people come into my life, but I, I meet them. Um, so that's, a, that's that was a key moment. Um, just meeting some of the, and throughout the uh, nominations process, the other folks who became district court judges and say, this is what you can expect. Um, and just little bits of advice. So they say, well, if you want an idea of what certain senators may ask you, and this is all public record, you go to the Senate Judiciary Committee website and you can look up what senators ask in something that's known as questions for the record. These are written questions that senators mm-hmm. submit to someone after their committee hearing. Um, and so you can get to see the questions they ask and the kind of answers that other nominees have given. And just to get an idea of what what and get your thought process going. Um, so that was very helpful just to know that. Um, gosh, meeting just meeting bill Ford coming here right um and him giving me the sort of the so two people early on my senior defense counsel in the marine corps stephen newman who's now the chief defense counsel for the northern district of ohio yeah. giving me the autonomy to try my own cases and these are your cases you get to make the decisions i only want to hear from you if you have a real question and then bill Ford tells me the same thing so i get to a chance to to run with my own cases and handle them. And I just go to the guy with the gray hair when I need some real advice. Um, but that was super helpful. because sure. You know, you get, you get the sense that hey, these are my cases, the, the engagement and face to face with the client as a young attorney. That's
0: key, which we're losing some of that. Um, so those opportunities, but I mean, I suggest, look, um, now that I supervise lawyers, you give, uh, younger lawyers, everything they're capable of handling, Correct. right? So if you right. haven't proven yourself, then sure. you don't get that that's trust, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. I and mean, I think what, what I kind of glean from this is, you know, I have kids of my own. I always tell them like, look, you are always being evaluated, yes. right? And you never know when that relationship might be somebody that impacts your life. So you, you work with Roy on this case, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. you apparently, uh, establish yourself as a trustworthy the incredible attorney. And then from there, it kind of, not just Roy, but every uh, interaction you had with them. Um, So what advice? I mean, so, you know, you have somebody that's interested in this path. What would be that nugget or that lesson to them on what to do?
1: Yeah. So uh, two things that come up top of my head is one, what you just said, which is, uh, and my phrasing of that is every day is an interview and treat every opportunity that you have with someone as an interview because you never know. Um, So do your very best. I kind of take it from Dr. King as well. It's like, Yeah, you might be a street sweeper today, but you just never know who's watching you. So be the best street sweeper. Don't complain about it. Um, Do that job like it's the best job in the world, like it's your top job. um, And people will see it. Um, Be true to yourself. Um, And I know that sounds very cliche, but it is so true. Um, I remember trying cases in the Marine Corps. I wasn't going to try to present myself like, "Um, I'm George Patton. Um, Hey, I'm I'm a Marine lawyer. Um, Yes, I had the same training as you, but Gosh, I don't live in the thicket of combat like you do, Um, but I understand it. I understand the culture, Um, and I'm going to present a case to you. I'm just a straight, boring guy. I'm going to write out my script of questions, but I wrote out like an entire— I would write out scripts for trials. I would Mm. write out my questions. I would write out the prosecutor's proposed Mm. questions because I knew they had to meet certain elements. I would write out their objections to my questions, my responses, and then I would object to theirs, and I would, and then my response to their objection, and then I would have case law already highlighted um, for either scenario. Um, and judges, the, the military judges love that. And I would say, they would say objection. And I would say, yeah, judge, that's it, what he's saying. But either there's an exemption to the hearsay rule or an exception to it. Here's some authority that, that's binding on you. Present it. And then they would go to the other side. Captain? <laughs> and then you just stuttering. Yeah, and you say, well, <laughs> Captain Pulliam's right. And so I, I, I carried that over with me when I came back to Texas. Um, just having i would say for me it, the, the confidence that you you get from um being true to yourself um and following that following your gut when you know you're right even if everybody else tells you you're crazy and you're wrong absolutely uh, yeah no i i remember i was sitting in um one of our county courts and i was taking some criminal appointments before i won the county court seat and there was a lawyer who says you're never going to win you, you were just i don't know what do you think you're doing you're just, you're, you're, yeah, you're, uh, you're a transplant. And I was like, I was like okay, great. You're, you're you're one vote, and God bless you. That's right. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to listen to you. I'm just going to forward, forward, forward. So I would tell folks that. Um, but gosh, you treat every day like an interview, an, an opportunity to impress somebody. Just do your best no matter what. And people will see it. People will see the effort.
0: Definitely. Well, Judge, I know you have a busy day. It's been such a pleasure yeah. to sit down with you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you on behalf of the San Antonio Bar Association. It has been a real joy.
2: Thank you.